You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome, everybody, to the Uncorking a Story podcast. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today's podcast features an interview I recently conducted with serial entrepreneur Dave Mezapel. In addition to starting a number of businesses, Dave is also the founder of the Contagious Optimism Movement. Dave's a guy who truly believes that we all have the capability to make optimism contagious just by sharing our life stories and adventures. And that belief, along with a push from his alma mater, Fairfield University, fueled Dave's desire to write and publish a best-selling book series that contains real stories from real people demonstrating that every cloud has a silver lining. Now, today, the Contagious Optimism Movement has grown beyond books to also include TED Talks and a series of Contagious Optimism Live events that feature powerful talks from real people around the world accompanied by music and entertainment. Just a quick story before we get into the meat of the interview. I met Dave at his offices in Jupiter, Florida, and uh, finding this office was a bit of a challenge for me because it's got multiple names and my GPS didn't like them. So I gave up on the GPS. I called Dave to see if he could guide me in. And when he asked me for a landmark, I looked around and saw only one sign. And the sign read Carlin Park. So I took that as a sign that I was on the right track. Also, once I got to the office, this interview began a little bit shakily because I was greeted by one of Dave's dogs who decided to use my Achilles tendon as a chew toy. But fortunately for me, I'm not that tasty. And the dog turned his attention to something else. As you listen to this interview, you're going to come to the realization that I did, that that Dave is just a fascinating guy, and you will quickly understand how somebody like him could establish a movement called Contagious Optimism. Frankly, he's one of the most optimistic guys I've ever met. He's got the ability to put thought into action, and we discuss this quality at length during the course of the interview. And I'm coming to see how important that characteristic, that characteristic of being able to put thought into action is in predicting one's likelihood of success in any of life's endeavors. Also, you'll see the role that optimism plays, because why else would somebody pursue an idea unless they really believed it could work? You'll also hear his take on the power of self-discovery and why it's critical to always remind yourself of what your goals are. And please don't miss the last part of the interview when Dave gives his younger self three pieces of critical advice that he's learned in his journey of keeping his glass completely full. Since I really want to help Dave make optimism contagious, we're doing a special offer. So for the first 10 people who share and retweet this interview through our Twitter feed, which is located at Uncorking a Story, uh, you'll receive a free Contagious Optimism t-shirt. Just please be sure to use the hashtag Contagious Optimism when you retweet. As always, I appreciate your feedback. So if you have any to give me about this interview, Or if you have a recommendation of someone you'd like to hear me interview in the future, please send me an email. My email address is mike 
at uncorkingastory.com. As always, happy listening. So I thought we'd, uh, we'd start off. I mean, there, there, there are, you know, kind of a couple areas I want to circle around. But the first, the first topic is what's up with Burt Reynolds Park? Because I drove by. And I, and I could have sworn I saw like a black Trans Am in the in the parking lot as I drove by. Are you aware that there's a Burt Reynolds Park like right around the corner from here? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the the big park is now Harborside. It's a whole. It's like it was his school. He had the Burt Reynolds Theater there and school, yeah. and that's all now a mixed use facility of shops and restaurants. So it it is the Burt Reynolds though. It oh, is. it is named after oh, the yeah. uh, the the guy Smokey. Oh yeah, I didn't, I, or the bandit rather. Florida, right? I did. Yeah, I grew, grew up in Plantation. Right, okay, that's right. Yeah, it was Burt Reynolds was born and raised in Jupiter. Yeah. So so much here is uh, is named after him, and yeah. he's still around, and he has a home up Jupiter Island, and you know he's around here definitely. Still, uh, the last thing I saw him in, I think, was Boogie Nights. He, yeah. He played the the creepy director in uh in Boogie Nights. He did. That's pretty funny. He, uh, you know, with everything that happened with Lonnie Anderson and then financially, he, he sold a lot of assets, which were several local buildings. But he's still integrated. He's still teaching courses around here and doing interviews. And so I, I, think I took my kids on, um, you know, my parents live on the, they're close to the Intercoastal in, in Fort Lauderdale. They have the water taxi. Yep. So we take the water taxi up just as kind of like a touristy thing to do. And they always point out, like, who owns what house. And, uh. They do tell a story about Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson and, and the price of their home on the Intercoastal down for a lot of mill anyway. No way. And oh, they that's do. Funny. Yeah, it make, makes it into the uh, one of the many tales they tell on that tour. Yeah, that's really nice. I, actually, I've been by your folks' place. We were there a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's great. I love that area. Yeah, it's cool. That's really fun. Um, let's talk about Contagious Optimism really sure. quick. So tell me, you know, this is not just uh, like a, a one. It's not just a book. It's really a, it's like a movement of sorts. How did it? How did it come to you? And t- actually, tell me a little bit more about it. Sure. And then tell me like how kind of the origin of it. Yeah. Well, I I always loved people's stories like like you do, and uh, I could never get enough of it. Especially, which I've mentioned in my talks, is that I grew up the youngest in my family, so I had a lot of relatives, older relatives, and older family friends, and I just loved their stories. I just couldn't get enough of their story. Were you the kind of kid who was like at the dinner table, you know, when the other siblings were gone, listening to, to the older people tell uh, tell tales? Oh, yeah. Over and over. Yeah. And uh, it always impressed me. It always impressed me. And then uh, as time went on and people started dying off and everything else, I thought, boy, you know, I should have captured a lot of those cool stories, whether it was the war, depression, industrialization, uh, sports, all kinds of great sports stories. Um, and then Fairfield U had been wanting me to write a book on optimism and business because I'm generally a very optimistic person. And I did a lot of um, kind of uplifting, optimistic things for my staffs over the years, the businesses I've run. And uh, by 2010, I said, you know what, I'll do it. I will, I will write a book on optimism, but let's do it about other people, like Chicken Soup for the Soul. Let's capture people's stories across different themes of life. I've, I've always loved that model. And, uh, and that's really where it stemmed from. So, so Fairfield came to you. Um, what, tell me about just kind of the journey of, like, putting those stories together and, and even finding a publisher because I know that's not – I mean, as somebody who's published before, I, I know how, how difficult a road that can be. 
Um, just tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. It's definitely a difficult road. And when people think writing a book is hard, wait till you start looking for a publisher. It's almost the easy part, right? Oh, yeah. Like getting oh, it yeah. And then when you land a publisher, trying to do a lot of the marketing that they want you to do in conjunction with them and the publicist. So it's, it's much more of a project I took on than I thought when I started writing. Um, so basically what happened was people had said to me, you know, when you write, when you write the book, start looking around for an agent. But I didn't want to do that while I was writing because it was really something I was doing for myself and a little fundraiser for the school. And I didn't want to start spending my energy looking for an agent. So I thought I'm going to write the book, finish the book, then I'll worry about how I'm going to get it published. And that's what I did. So I started writing it in 2010. I finished it in uh, early 2013. And uh, I started studying the marketplace, uh, literary marketplace, 1,000 agents. There's all these different companies that do this. And I started researching, and I was hitting a lot of dead ends. And you can't submit a manuscript to a publisher uh, unsolicited. You right. have to have an agent unless you want to self-publish. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. So one of my co-authors played tennis with a literary agent in uh, Belvedere, you know, Tiburon, Belvedere area of California. Yeah. And she was part of the team that worked on Random Acts of Kindness, you know, years ago when that book came out. So it was perfect. It's a perfect um, connection. So I stayed on top of it, contacted her. We became good friends, and she became my agent, Sharon. Mm-hmm. Her name's Sharon. And, uh, and that was it. And then she found me a great publisher, Viva Editions, who focuses on uplifting books. And, and we launched, and that was great. And that's how I landed. So, you know, you mentioned Fairfield. You came to you. They wanted you to, to write this. They, they kind of approached you. And there must have been a reason why, yes. you know, out of all the graduates of Fairfield University, they come to Dave Mazepel. So let's 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 go back in time a little bit, right? So sure. let's get in the DeLorean, hit eighty eight miles an hour and, and and kind of go back. Yep. So where where you know, where did this kind of optimism where do you think it came from? Well, to answer the first part of that question, um, throughout the nineties I ran a tech company. I started right out of college. And as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we would build and manage data centers for banks and schools and small businesses. And one of the things I did was hired lots of interns. I figured I was an intern, I'll hire interns. And I started at Fairfield, my alma mater, and brought on all kinds of students, and their jobs were to get out and pound pavement and get us accounts. Plus, we hired graphic artist majors, accounting majors. So we had all the different areas covered the best we could with interns. And my reasoning for that was they would grow with us and then as we grow, I bring the better ones on full-time when they graduate. It was a perfect way to start a family, the way I looked at it in business. Uh, Fairfield observed this the whole time I did it, throughout the early 90s, really. And, and then along those lines, I did a lot of like motivational stuff to keep the students psyched, get them pumped up, uh, motivate them to whatever they do for their career, whether it's stay with us or go somewhere else. Again, Fairfield was a big part of this because they were the first school I, I worked with. Uh, so they kept saying to me, you need to write a book about this. This would be a great primer for people looking to start out in business or improve a hurting business. This is a great model you have here. 
And they kept pushing me and pushing me to write a book about my experience of the way I created these internship programs. So they never really stopped asking me to do it. Yeah. And when I was finally ready to do it, I said, okay, I will. And this is when I got the chicken soup for the soul idea. And uh, along those lines, I said that my book royalties I would share with Fairfield uh, because they've been so motivational for me. So this, this, the tech company that you mentioned that you started in the 90s, was that the first business you started or were there other businesses before that? No, I, I worked for IBM for four years as a student, as an intern. They call those supplementals. Yeah. And that was from 1986 to 1990. And then I, my reasoning was I would graduate and get hired by them. You know, growing up there in Connecticut, yeah. IBM had a big presence. So, well, I hit the one year where IBM was falling apart. 1990, John Akers was being ousted. The company was hurting. The stock was below 30. It was, they were not hiring the supplementals. So, because I wanted real experience there, and then I would start, I would start my own company eventually, but that wasn't happening that way. So yeah. right out of the shoot, I started right out yeah. of, after I graduated. But you, you always had like this idea in your head that you you were gonna start your own business at at some point. Correct. Where did that come from? I mean, was it always a dream of yours to be self-employed, or what was the rationale yeah, you, there? You know. Um, Riding bikes and delivering newspapers and then going around the neighborhood and washing cars and cutting lawns and odd jobs. I've been an entrepreneur since I was about nine, and I loved it. And I could not see myself working for somebody else. I just couldn't do it. Uh, Which I, makes it, like, it's so interesting for me to hear that you, like, wanted to work for IBM. Because when I think of, like, the man, especially back in those days, you know, was, the white shirts, right. dark suits, you know. Like, that, that couldn't be any more different from, like, what I would picture a future entrepreneur wanting to, like, seek out as a place of employment. No, it's, it's quite a almost juxtaposition, right? No, but, you know, the thing for me with IBM was that it would be a very respectable element of my resume in terms of landing clients, um, whether I was getting a loan or, or landing clients or vendors. I figured... I work for IBM. I get the experience. It's credible. Uh, I make great connections there. And one of the things I wanted to do was acquire IBM end-of-lease equipment and resell it because back then it was so expensive to buy new. Oh, sure. So all these connections were why I wanted to work there, even though, yes, that is that was Big Brother uh, for sure. But it was worth it was worth those four years of working there. It was actually they were really good to their interns. So you had you had your four years. Um, didn't didn't come on board full time because of the reasons you mentioned. And then then you start your own business. You don't seek another employer. You start your own. You start your own business. Yeah, I actually I had a couple uh, local jobs uh, just for extra income. But yeah, I started right out of the shoot with uh, it was called Goliath Technology, yeah. and I started. Where'd you get that name, Goliath? Well. You want seven letters in an 800 number. So I had to come up with <clears throat> a phone number that worked, that was catchy, easy to market. Uh, I wanted to have a sound of a big presence because I believe that you need to portray yourself as competent and, and large and, and able to handle anything. So the word Goliath was perfect. It's an 800 number, 1-800-GOLIATH I could get. Uh, Goliath sounds great. I always loved the show Davy and Goliath <laughs> growing up. The claymation? Yeah. 
Davy. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Davy and Goliath. So, and my name's David. It seemed like the perfect name. Yeah. It kind of, kind of aligned. So when you, so back in the nineties, like you're starting that out, what, what was your mindset kind of back then? I mean, you're doing something that not a lot of, you know, kids who are coming out of college are doing, which is kind of starting, starting our own business. What, what were, what was your mindset? What were some of the barriers you faced kind of, kind of along the way? And, and did you have any doubts? Yeah, so back then, you know, first of all, to get students, I wanted to hire interns to work for me because I couldn't afford employees. You know, I was right out of college. So the first thing that concerned me was what school, even Fairfield for that matter, who's going to give me essentially free employees? Because back then, interns were either nursing, working in hospitals, or law students working in law firms. Um, or companies like GE and IBM, you know, a mom-and-pop small business out of my parents' attic were not going to – schools weren't going to give me free students. It wasn't going to happen. So I had to really work this model, and that was a big concern. And Fairfield was willing to give me a try by bringing on a few students, IT students. And their job would be they would learn more about IBM – I was an IBM business partner. That was how I started, just IBM product. So they'd learn about IBM, and I would send them into the data centers of the local companies and schools in the you know, southern Connecticut and New York area. So Fairfield thought, okay, this would be a great experience. So I was a little concerned about how I'm going to get staff. I wasn't concerned about product because IBM had plenty of DX, you know, the deacquisition product. So I just had to get a staff to get out there and pound pavement. So that was, you know, that was a barrier. Um, and then the, don't bark. Then the, ne- then the next barrier would be um, cost of goods sold. You know, I need to get, I need to get product, but I didn't want to do heavy inventory. So how would I do this? How would I acquire some product for the purpose of resale? So that was another thing, but I was able to do it. Uh, I was able to get a loan and, and buy some equipment that I knew was hot. And then as I got out there, I started marketing with that initial batch of inventory. And by hot, you don't mean stolen. You mean it was popular. Popular because, you know, like the AS400s, the IBM mainframes were so expensive. Um, the old IBM ThinkPads were thousands and thousands of dollars new. And we were getting these deacquired units at the end of two- and three-year leases. So all this, there were all hurdles, but I was able to surmount them. Right. So you build up, you build up that business, um, and it eventually becomes what? What? What is that? A bit, what was your exit out of that business? Well, seventeen years later, so what happened was the first ten years were great. Nineteen ninety to two thousand was really a revolution, as you know, yeah. technology. Uh, we started landing a lot of the IBM, so, not IBM, the uh, all the technology Silicon Valley startups and all that. Uh, that's when we got away from IBM. We started covering all different product lines. So with the boom in, in tech stocks and all these up-and-comers, we landed a lot of great clients. It was a good time. And then that market collapsed by really mid-2000. Yeah, I remember. I was I was in it. Oh, yeah. I was in it at the time. Yeah, so the market collapsed. The margins were shrinking. That's when I started getting frustrated. And then the big box stores started divisions that were selling into corporate accounts. They weren't just doing retail, even though they were retail storefronts. We were strictly B2B, and all these B2C companies were becoming B2B as well. 
and that's that killed our margins, and that was very hard. Um, and then our biggest account was Bank America. We controlled all their data centers. And then when they merged with Nations Bank, they became Bank of America, they, they brought in a lot of the nation's uh, vendors. And then eventually Hewlett-Packard took over the data centers for Bank America. They took over the management. And Software House International picked up a lot of the licensing. So we, we were then reduced to just manage the Bank America mortgage division. And then that became, you know, again, margins were shrinking, big box stores were competing with us, and I lost interest in the industry. 17 years, um, it, it wasn't a matter of the time. I didn't mind the time, but what I didn't like was we were losing money just in working harder. That became very frustrating for me. So I started getting into a lot of consulting and other projects, and I sold off the book of business and had kept the educational piece. And then I eventually sold off the educational piece to, to a friend of ours yeah. who used to work for me for about five years. He had worked for me at that point. And uh, I sold him that piece, and now I'm out. And I've been doing Contagious Optimism and consulting on other projects that, since 2007. So uh, we, have, we have our dogs here. Today. We, have a, we have a guest. Um, it's going to be all right, buddy. Um. <laughs> When when you launch Contagious Optimism, um, what's the what's the initial reaction? What what so the book comes out? What happened next? Well, everybody loved the name, and that was really great because I I love the name too. And when we were thinking about titles, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who I actually a roommate of mine from college, and he said, you know, how could you not call it Contagious Optimism? You used to say that all the time at, at school. You are contagiously optimistic. How could you not use that name? And I thought, you know what? That's a great, great point. And that's that's how the name came to be. So what's <laughs> a great reaction? Where does where does contagious optimism go from here? You have you have two books out, mm-hmm. um, and then you do live events. What's what's sort of the what's the, the the road ahead for contagious optimism? Sure. Well, again, using chicken soup for the soul as uh, what really motivated me in terms of the design of our book series. Um, our first two books were general editions, so each book is about 10 themes, and then under each theme is 10 to 12 stories. Uh, now that we've done the first two books, uh, we're going to do themed editions. So now we'll do themed editions. We'll do a business edition, which we're working on now. We're going to do a disability edition, which is stories from people with illness and disabilities and how they've overcome that. Um, we're going to do a cancer edition a children's edition, a sports edition, which will be great. Uh, and then we're going to keep that going. How do you source the, uh, the authors for all this? Because I know it's kind of they're almost like anthologies, right? So how do you, how do you find great people to, to contribute? Well, in the beginning, again, using the intern model, we were able to get out, pound pavement, and just meet people in airports and train stations and through the Internet, through social media. We've connected with people to capture stories, people I knew that had great stories. And then as after the first book came out and there was some popularity, we were able to advertise that we're looking for stories, and the stories come in organically now. I mean, the second book, we had almost 7,500 stories. We had to whittle down to about 100 stories. Yeah. And we have an essay bank where we put the ones that don't fit the bill. So you got to keep them kind of warm for maybe to use them at a – 
Yeah, like a really great sports story won't work in our business edition, but it'll work in our sports edition. So, so many stories are great. They just might not work in what we're currently working on. Yeah. Um, So thinking about – I I interviewed a guy uh, a couple weeks ago um, named Andy Greenfield who uh, was a guy from Connecticut, built up a couple businesses, sold them. He he kind of of turned me on to this idea of, you know, people – who are able to kind of put thought into action, right? And, I, and, I, and as I started thinking about it, I'm like, wow, that's really what separates people who actually go out and, and do stuff like this and who are entrepreneurial right. from, like, we all have great thoughts. Like, we all sit and think and dream. And I think a lot of us, it's like part of the human condition. But then there is that, like, different, I, I don't know if it's a gene or what, but, like, switch that some people have that, that can take their thoughts and like take them to the next step, which is actually get that book published, start that business, et cetera. What's, what's your take on that? You know, I, I love this topic. I love this topic. And I talk about this quite often when I speak at colleges and high schools. I believe that people that have great ideas, the talent, the talent is not in the idea itself. It's in executing what you just said. So many people have so many great ideas, but they don't execute them. And I consider myself an executor. I will. I have to do. I have to hit the ground running. And people shouldn't let their dreams just like flounder. Execute it. And if you don't know how, there's plenty of resources to help you. So I feel strongly about it. Yeah, you could go on and on about about all these great ideas and out in, in cyberspace, but you have to execute. You have to make it happen. Yeah. And that's the difference. Um, because if you just sit there and let it spin, you're always going to wonder what you should have done and if, if you should have done it. So Yeah, I think like we all have you know these, these roadblocks that we put up, right? And, and I think this might even get back to this idea of optimism. I don't know if it will, but we'll see. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's really up to us to, to kind of – no one's going to take a roadblock down for us, right? No. You have to do that yourself. And we're really limited by our own what I would call like limiting beliefs. So I think the difference between, you know, somebody, let's say like a, a Dave Mezapel, who, who actually has thoughts, can put them in action, and someone else is the fact that they might I, I even recognize a limiting belief, but they're able to, to kind of almost suspend it and kind of push forward, um, you know, whereas other people might say, you know what, this, this roadblock is too high for me. There's no way I can possibly, right. this hurdle's too high, I can't jump over it. So it's almost like a choice that we make. How do, you, do, you th- do you think that could be true? Like it, 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 that these limitations could be choices that we we make? Oh, yeah. I mean, so many people have dealt with roadblocks and adversity and, and things that have, I hate to say, reduced their confidence, but it has. It's made them feel they just can't surmount it. And it's a, it's a huge limiting factor in people moving forward and what, what they can do. And I believe anybody can do anything they want. You, you just have to make it happen. I mean, something as simple as going to the gym. Like this morning, it was Monday's a gym day for me. So I, this morning, I didn't feel like going. I just didn't feel like going. It was like drinking glass, you know. I didn't want to do it. But I forced myself to go. And I left. And I thought, I'm so glad I went. And it, it's the same kind of parallel. You know, sure, it sucks to have to find an agent. A literary agent. It's brutal. And then it sucks to have to go find an author or a publisher. It's a, it's a really pain in the ass. But you know what? Once you do it, you're like, wow. Even if you're not making millions of dollars, 
the fact that you have a published book and it's something you believe in and people are reading it and appreciating it and you're helping others, at least in our case, we help others. And, and it's worth that work. It's worth doing whatever you can to execute your dreams. So sure. there, but I'm sure there were times in your life when you were questioning, Definitely. like, am I doing the right thing? So what, what you're, this is how I typically like to end these things. Um, and just bear with me because it's a long setup. So, so like, <laughs> that's awesome. How's that for motivation? <laughs> bear with me. It's a long setup. You might cry. No, I'm here. Um, so picture that, that, like that time in your life where you were kind of doubting what it is you're doing. Right. So you're, I don't know when it was for you, but just kind of picture that in your mind's eye and picture you as you were back then. Now picture yourself now. You're kind of leading the contagious optimism movement. You know, I'm looking around here. You've got T-shirts and books and and things like that. And and you've learned a lot of things, let's say, in that gap of time. If you could write a letter to your younger self, what are some of the things you would tell that person um, to kind of let them know that, hey, it's, it's, it's going to get better or, you know, it's not always going to be like this? What would you say? Right. That's, that, that's great. That wasn't too long of a setup. I thought it was good. Uh, that's actually a great drill. I think that's, people should do that more often. You know, the first thing I'd say is when, in, in my case, sitting there, because I used to come home from work, from whatever I was doing, and I'd be writing nights and weekends, I mean, five years essentially of writing, and between the two books. And I'd say, what am I doing? Where is this going? So don't lose sight of the goal. You know, know why you're doing it for a reason. Don't lose sight of it. Um, the original subtitle on the first book, which they didn't want to put, was no matter what, we always have something to look forward to. And that's what I would remind my younger self every day. Like no matter what, we have something to look forward to. No matter what, it's going to work out. That's always been my thing is that it always works out. I noticed Whatever quandary I'm in, whatever situation, it always, it just always seems to fall into place. And I don't know if that's luck. I, I do believe it's also faith. I believe it's hard work. I believe it's being a good person. And uh, that, to me, is the most important element. It, it works out. And that could be starting a business. That could be a relationship. That could be a health issue. It could be getting through your studies, uh, accomplishing that degree. It just it seems to all work out. Just don't lose sight of it. Just stay psyched. Yeah, it reminds me like I was self employed for a while and I remember um Yeah, which is a dangerous place to be in when you have three kids uh, and a mortgage and you know, you've got all these responsibilities and right. and it was up to me to bring in all the business that, that I could. And there would be periods of time where I'd look at my pipeline and I I wouldn't see anything. Right. And I'm like I'd be like Holy bleep. You know, I don't know how it's going to work <laughs> sure, out. Sure. So that, it, but I would put it like out there. I would like try and go through some exercise, you know, a spiritual exercise or something where I could just envision something good happening. You know, I would envision a call or a request for proposal coming in. And, and I'm not kidding. And I'm not saying this to be dramatic, but it would happen. Okay. Like I would get uh, a client who I hadn't talked to in a while. Say, hey, you know what? We need to do some focus groups. Can you can you help us out? They've got to be next week. You know, can you do it? And I'd be like, wow, this just happened. You know, it's 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 an amazing thing. But so there is something to that 
not losing sight, not giving up hope, and then just kind of putting it out there and seeing what comes back. It's so beautifully said. You're you're 100% right. You know, when you're dealing with thousands of people around the world with all kinds of pretty sad stories, but how they turn themselves around, you realize, A, it could be so much worse for yourself, but B, people that have been through the worst possible situation, they've gotten through it with a smile, and we're capturing their stories. And it was such an eye-opener for me. I mean, here I'm doing this project because I believe in it, and I learned so much more, not just about the world, but about myself and my potential because of all these people's stories. Yeah. For that reason you just mentioned. Yeah, it's like our kids, um, they have to do a certain amount of, uh, of volunteer work, right, for, for their school. And, um, and they, they never look forward to it. Like, it's like, oh, God, we got to do this. And, but always at the end of it, whether they're, like, doing a soup kitchen thing or something else, they always come back and say, you know what, that was actually really great. And they learn something from that experience. So it's not just like these, you know, church organizations out there trying to get free labor, you know, like your interns. But it's, it, it, it is about kind of teaching these kids who, let's face it, I mean, we come you know, where we grew up. It's, you know, there, there's a lot of privilege around there. There's also a lot of, you know, the, the exact opposite. But, like, we're in a situation where we want to make sure our kids – I mean, for lack of a better term, don't grow up to be assholes. Yes. And one way, <laughs> one way <laughs> sorry for those listening at home who <laughs> might be listening with their kids, but um, they, uh, that's one way to do it, you know, just to expose kids to expose, like, in, not even just kids, right? All of us, expose all of us to people who are not as fortunate and kind of work side by side um, to, to give yourself that experience. Yeah. It- that, that altru- a little altruism goes a long way. You know, I have the privilege of, of speaking at different kinds of venues quite often. And last August, I was the keynote speaker for Miss Wheelchair USA in Ohio. That was definitely a highlight. Of the five years so far, what I've done with this thing, that was by far the biggest and most amazing thing so far. Speaking to these women who have either were in a terrible accident or developed an illness uh, or something to put them in a wheelchair and seeing them go through like what Miss America goes through. They have to go through all these things and then compete and, uh, and hearing their stories. It was amazing. Powerful stuff. It was powerful. And same with our interns, you know, for me, the interns weren't about the free labor because we still always gave them a few dollars, but the best part is now, all these years later, we hear from these interns and what they're doing with their lives. And uh, what a great, great thing to hear. Great thing to hear that our experience helped them. Yeah. You know, it's good. So. All right. Well, I, I think that's a good place to end. Good. All right. Thank you for, uh, for the time. And uh, good to see you. Thanks. You too. See all you right. In Connecticut. Absolutely. So those of you who paid attention to the uh, beginning of this interview, uh, you'll uh, remember I told the story about how uh, one of Dave's dogs decided to use my Achilles as a chew toy. Well, I don't know if you heard at the end of the interview, there was a little dog barking, and that was a little guy who got me. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dave. I certainly enjoyed sharing it with you. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments for me, please send me an email to mike at uncorkingastory.com. 
And remember, the first people, uh, the first 10 people to retweet this interview on Twitter using the hashtag Contagious Optimism will receive a free Contagious Optimism t-shirt. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Uncorking a Story, and uh, go from there. You know what to do. Thank you all very much, and have a great day.